Welcome to season two of Unlocking Innovation. In season one, we had a chance to speak with over 25 of Chicago's top innovators. In season two, we have an even wider variety of interviews with business leaders, not just here in Chicago, but all over the globe, including top companies such as Rio Tinto, Second City, Weber Shanwick, Kellogg's, and more. To celebrate our first year of Unlocking Innovation, we hosted a live panel discussion between a few of our most popular guests, which was moderated by 1871 CEO, Betsy Ziegler. Make sure you stay tuned after the episode for an exclusive sneak peek at what's to come in season two. Thanks for listening. All right, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started, if you wouldn't mind taking your seats. Wow. You guys enjoying yourself so far? Let me hear you. Are you enjoying yourself? All right, good, good, good. Uh, my name is Adam Wisniewski. I'm the CEO and founder of EX3 Labs. Um, in partnership with 1871, we launched Unlocking Innovation Live podcast, and today we're here to celebrate the one-year anniversary of the podcast. We have some phenomenal, phenomenal guest speakers here today. One of the things that is important for you to know is the people that, that you're sitting next to and the people on the panel, one thing I love about all of these individuals represented in this room is that they're accessible accessible and they're willing to share knowledge and they've done a phenomenal job. The individuals you see um, seated here today uh, represent some of the top ranked podcasts that we have. It wasn't just a random, they weren't randomly picked. These were some of the more popular podcasts and they've helped Unlock Innovation become one of the number one podcasts, not just in Chicago, but we're, we're now ranked I think 20th in Sweden and stuff like that. So it's pretty exciting. So thank you all for that. With that said, I'm going to turn, turn it over um, to Betsy Ziegler, who is someone you definitely need to know. If you don't know who she is, she's the uh, CEO of 1871. She's been in that role for 18 months. And let me tell you something. She has made such an impact, not just on the startup community in Chicago, but on corporate innovation as a whole. So is definitely somebody you want to uh, follow the, the career trajectory on and also network her, with her, because she is a phenomenal individual. With that said. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. Hi, everybody. How are you guys? Hi. All right, you ready for some knowledge? Yes. All right. So um, we're going to start. I think we've got about 45 minutes to facilitate a conversation. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. The goal for these folks is to give you insight that you actually can take action against, right? So we're going to try to get to real examples and real um, points of view that you can actually leverage as you go back to your offices, probably not tomorrow, because tomorrow's Friday, right? But let's call it on Monday. <laughs> so um, really quickly, because you've got a phenomenal group of leaders in front of you to learn from, I'm going to ask them in, in like one minute to tell you who they are, what they do, and sort of their role as it relates to innovation. All right, so Adam, let's start with you. Um, Adam Heckman, I work for Microsoft. My role is uh, a new one. I work for Microsoft Philanthropies and I work with the corporate social responsibility departments of other big companies and see where um, their philanthropic goals align with our philanthropic goals and see if we can do fun and innovative social impact together. Awesome, thank you. Leslie? 
Leslie Anderson, I am the U.S. and International Head of Workplace Experience Technology. So a big long word to describe that I impact um, the technology that goes on our buildings and the user tech that sits in every one of our 45,000 employees' hands. So I, write, I help to write that strategy and then I also help to activate that use. Great. Guillaume? Good afternoon. Guillaume Dodon, it's a French name. Je suis français. I uh, work for Dow Inc, uh, formerly known as the Dow Chemical Company, and I have a few roles, uh, responsibility for customer experience services, portfolio of solution system and services that touch our customers globally, uh, and also responsibility for our network of digital innovation centers. Uh, we have one in Chicago, now one in Shanghai and Sao Paulo working on transforming the customer experience through fancy new digital solutions. Great. Mandy? I'm Mandy Tavonen. I'm the Managing Director of RelishWorks. RelishWorks is the independent innovation hub for Gordon Food Service, which is a wholesale food distribution company headquartered in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, our innovation hub is uh, set up to really diversify the types of businesses Gordon Food Service is in, recognizing that the distribution industry is being dramatically uh, disrupted. Awesome. See, lots of great, you're already learning something, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna try to cover themes on culture, risk-taking, balancing failure and innovation, customer experience, measuring impact, et cetera. And the way we're gonna do it, I'm gonna have one person take the lead, and then the rest of you folks just chime in and add your additional story. So Adam, we're gonna start with you. We're gonna talk okay. about culture a little bit, okay? So you know, every company that I talk to and certainly uh, peers of yours uh, wanna develop a great culture, right? But, it's, but that's often an innovative culture. But that's often difficult in large organizations. How does Microsoft think about it? And how, you know, what, what, is, what is the unique part of Microsoft's approach to this? And I, well, I think a, you just went through a transformation. Yeah, right? it, it was. Yeah, that's an. It's a timely question because you, you understand Microsoft is a um, 130-ish thousand employees. This was a big company, and when you make a culture change, you know, turning that shift 180 degrees is. It's not. It's not trivial, and I think one of the things you asked what makes it unique. One of the yeah. things that makes us unique is that we've changed our culture, um, you know, about three times, right? Um, In what time period? Well, it, it, we've been around 40 years or okay. so. Um, we've only had three CEOs. We had Bill Gates, and then we had Steve Ballmer, and now we have Satya. So I think the last time we went through a culture change was when um, our third CEO came in. That was February of 2014. Um, and you know, by, by most accounts, when he came in, we were, we were doing good. We were doing, actually, we were doing rel really good. We were solid. Um, our financials were good, we were growing, we were making um, interesting things. But when he came in, we had a, a perspective problem. And it was both you know, our internal perspective of ourselves, and I'll say the market's perspective of us, because you know, we're this, um, we were a middle-aged tech company in 2014. Um, and you know, the world was changing fast, we had to figure out a way to change with it, but it's 130,000 people. You have to have a compelling reason to change the way that that number of people are doing things. So Satya uh, Nadella, our CEO, put it this way. We had to figure out who we were, 
we had to figure out why we were. And then he asked the, the real, us to think about the really tough question was, um, what would the world look like without us? Would anybody notice? Would anybody, would anybody care? So it was really a situation where you had a company that was trying to uh, rediscover its soul. And I know that sounds overly dramatic and cheesy, but it really was that existential. We had to rediscover our soul. So we shifted our mission, um, and it, we, were, we were trying to think about wh what that new mission would be that still you know, pays honor to where we came from, and we found it actually hiding in plain sight because uh, it connects to our earliest days in the company. As a company, we, our, our mission is to empower every person and every organization on the planet to achieve more. Now, you know, people internally debate what's the most important part about that, but, um, you know, the, the, word, the word empower is a word that gets thrown around in our industry a lot. Um, to the point where it almost means nothing. But when we talk about it, what it means is that with the right tools, anybody can do anything, right? Regardless of abilities, regardless of background, regardless of where in the organization, with the right tools, you provide empowerment. And so Microsoft, we're a platforms company, right? We make platforms. That's what we do. And then Sacha basically t reminded us that because we're a platform company, you have to not think, what, what is it that I can do for Microsoft today, Instead, us internally, not you as a customer. Um, instead, we, we have to think about Microsoft as, um, as a platform for amplifying um, our purpose. And that's, what that's when it started to click in a lot of people's minds and when we started to change that culture. And how, and how is it? Is it fair to say that innovation is just embedded in every Microsoft employee and it's just part of the DNA of people that work at Microsoft and how it's run? Or do you have, did you have to make an explicit move outside of that to make sure that that continues to exist and you continue to look and reinvent yourself? The answer is yes to all of those because innovation is built into our DNA. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> there was a time where we weren't as innovating as fast as the market. Yep. And we had to we had to break ourselves off from um, some complacency. You know, there's that there's the book I think it's Marshall Goldsmith, "What Got You There yeah, won't, won't Get You, get there you Here" you. or whatever yeah. it is. Or what got you here won't get you there. Yeah, yeah. what got you there yeah. won't get you here. What got you no, here won't get you. Yeah, what get you there? So you know that's that, yeah. It's, it's neither here nor there, um, but it is somewhere. Um, th that was definitely true too. So yeah, you had a bunch of innovative people. Was that innovative showing, innovation showing? No, uh, it took a culture change for that to happen. Now I know all three of you also struggle with these kinds of themes, so wanna share some of your perspective on this, how you shape an innovative culture inside of your large organizations? Theo? I mean, yeah, I'm gonna build up on the DNA uh, thing because I, I have a hard time thinking about a company's DNA. So our approach has been much more, let's say, practical. And I tend to think of a culture as a system. You know, the culture is a result of the system you have in your organization. What is a system? System is everything that makes your organization. Uh, organization design, wall definition, 
values, expected behaviors, goals, metrics, job descriptions, tools and systems, methods. Now these are very practical and tangible and I think always take the time to recognize all those dimensions, all those components that make up that system, I take that system view, and then think about the one that are getting in your way for innovation. And then be very deliberate to say, hey, among all those different 20 or 30 dimensions, some of them very tangible, there are three or four that I know are definitely are real obstacles if I want to create a more innovative culture. So I'm going to change maybe goals or maybe job descriptions or maybe incentives or maybe trainings and with that start shifting, you know, shifting behaviors, shifting beliefs, shifting values towards what you're looking for. So our approach was I mean, it is still very pragmatic and being deliberate with what dimensions, what elements were tactically changing over time to get us there or here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the model that you're writing down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Leslie or Mandy, anything you want to add to that? I would just say that um, it, it's difficult, especially in institutions like financial institutions where trust is at the core um, of how we grow and how we succeed. Um, it really did take uh, the vision from the top of the house to mm -hmm. say, I know that there's innovative ideas in the people that do this work every single day. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the questions we talked about is, is failure. So we, we created models that allowed people um, to fail in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. We've got, we've created an innovation fund and we asked people to deliver ideas of how to do this work better. And from the top of the house, like our CEO saying, how do we be bolder? Mm -hmm. How can we cut costs? And especially in an environment where we're competing with um, fintechs, we, we are demanded to cut costs out of the system in ways that does not um, impact the employee experience right. or detract from the customer experience. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that culture is shifting. People are feeling, are, are given more the license to be more innovative and they now have an avenue um, and, a, and a place to actually unleash that, that spirit where we haven't had it before. But it did take it, it takes the top of the house to really commit to this work uh, in meaningful ways and, and to have a fun behind this work really yep. does put a stake in the round that says mm -hmm. we're serious. I want to use the theme of failure to jump into a, a question for yeah. you, Mandy, because sure. I think this, you know, when I talk to corporate groups, I often talk about the fact that the words failure and the words innovation are inseparable, right? You can't have one without the other, but in most corporate settings, most, not even corporate, most organizations, Failure is not a word that people embrace, no. right? And so we have to th think about the definition of failure and maybe use different, slightly different wor words. But Mandy, uh, about, a, about a quarter of the guests, so 24, 25% of the guests on the Unlocking Innovation podcast said, keeping up with the pace of change, which I know you, know, you and I have talked about, was the greatest challenge in innovation, while 33% cited overcoming innovation inertia. When you think about those two themes and this theme around failure and embracing mm -hmm. failure, or trial experimentation. From your perspective, what is the greatest <coughs> challenge when it comes to corporate innovation? Yeah, I th for me, and what, what we're experiencing is we have a 125-year-old company, and they're innovating every day. So that's what they've done to get to the place 
where they're at. So it, it, for me to come in and say, I have this great idea over here is almost embarrassing. Like I should feel ashamed. So for me, what I think is just knowing what our intent is around innovation. Why are we choosing to have an innovation agenda at all? And for Gordon Food Service, our industry, not our company, is under uh, significant threat. So that our, we have a reason, we have a burning platform to have an innovation agenda. And is our intent, um, what I think is really critical is just naming the intent. So is the intent to make us a better distributor? Or is the intent to diversify the types of revenue we earn? Um, and thinking about even within that intent, and I'll kind of break that down, does that mean that we are creating tools or are we creating P&Ls? I like to think about creating P&Ls um, and not tools because we have a wonderful digital team um, who are doing a great job thinking about the tools for the business. Can you give an example of when you say P&L, what, what does that mean for you? Creating for, for what, you know, our aim is to think about what other um, businesses should we be in as a wholesale distributor? How do we think about our main customers or restaurant operators? How do we think about their needs and how do we imagine the types of services we could be providing them um, beyond delivering them their food every day? So are there other ways in which we could be providing services or offerings? So I think about that in terms of, is that a new opportunity to serve um, and create a business out of that? And then after intent, I think about ambition. So even within that, if our intent is to create new P&Ls, at what ambition level? Is that continuing to serve restaurant operators? Or we have trucks, we have warehouses, what else could we be doing? And starting to think about how ambitious are we with our assets, with our people, with our vision. Um, if in fact we had decided that our purpose and our innovation intent was to help you know, foster a more innovative culture or improve, um, pro do kind of process improvement innovation, there's still ambition levels within that. So is that around digital tools and workplace you know, um, optimization and things like that? Is it about just warehouse innovation? So it's just like really getting specific and kind of holding leadership's feet to the fire about why do we exist? Why did you think that innovation was important to the business? Um, how intentional can we be with that strategy? And then even within that, how, how bold and what kind of failures are we willing to tolerate recognizing that the majority of the work that we do will in fact fail. So uh, you have, you, you sort of have a carve out in Chicago, right? You obviously yes. report into the CEO in, in Michigan, but you've got yes. a little bit of a carve out. You talked about an innovation fund at the bank. My, my, I don't know uh, with Microsoft and Dow, but my guess is you have structures that enable internal innovation at some level. How do you, how does it move out of, you know, in these sort of um, remote or carved out areas and get into the rest of business? Like how do you drive it across the leadership team? How do you drive the change management exercise to, and I welcome anyone to jump in. Mandy, maybe you start with, because you're, you have to bring a leadership team along 
and they're embracing an idea that's potentially about going beyond a restaurant operator or potentially leveraging an asset in a different way than they've done in X number of decades. How, how do you do that? What is the conversation? That's a great question. <laughs> um, I think that's, you know, that's, the, that's the thing. We're almost two years in, and we have a lot to learn. Um, I'm just now truly you know, figuring out the best way to engage with the leadership team um, in, in the home office and figuring out how do we make some of that stuff happen in ways that um, bring people in um, rather than we were set up as a separate legal entity for a reason to give us the space to try these new things in a more protected um, and kind of less risk on the main business. Um, but for those innovations that either leverage our assets or our people or our customers, and they do impact the main business, we really need to be, and I don't think we've perfected this, more intentional about engagement um, about bringing you know, the, the senior leadership team along. And again, I think, kind of Leslie, what you said, it's, there's something really special about this organization in that it's family owned and, and operated. And again, it's 125 years old, so the, 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 it's visceral. It's like very, very real um, that this, this 20,000 person company is an extended family of the Gordon family. And so th they're passionate about it. They care a lot about it. And so having that, where everyone that's on the team feels like this is our business. We feel mm -hmm. like owners. And I just think that, that kind of um, message from the top, that, that they're welcoming that kind of behavior um, will enable some of the kind of innovation to seep in yeah. and help us think about how to transform our business. Great. Leslie, you Adam? Yeah, I mean, we always use an, I always use an image and say, oh, as digital innovation, digital transformation, or whatever title we use, our role is to, is to walk on the edge. And it's on the edge of the cliff. Now, if we walk too far out, we fall down the cliff. And one way not to fall down, which is absolutely critical, is to have a big rope on the back that ties us to the rest of the company. And that's a vital, that's a vital critical link because as soon as we disconnect, I think that's what you were saying, is that engagement, that connection, that binding, as soon as you lose that, you fall off the cliff. So you need to have, you need to make sure that everything you do, you have a way to link back to the rest of the organization, whether this is business goals and business strategies, leadership engagement, education and awareness, and maintain that link active, etc. The only problem is that that link is also what creates the friction, because that's the way you're gonna, that link is gonna pull you, is gonna shake you, is gonna, and so you have to be ready to manage that, that, that double sword, the double-edged piece, which is, it's my survival link. I don't want to cut it, but it's also the most annoying link I have because it's, <laughs> now that's, that's the difficult, that's the challenge, but it's walking on the cliff with that rope on the back is really what we're trying to do.
Go ahead, Adam. Going back to your, your original question about how you push innovation out, I think some of that starts with, um, you know, Mandy mentioned leadership. Leadership recognizing that innovation can come from anywhere in the organization. Um, we, we have a few a bunch of projects actually that started out as Microsoft Garage projects um, that are now, you know, launch tools. If, you, if you're using an iPhone, um, download this app called Seeing AI. During a week that we have that's called One Week, um, where people in the company, you know, go do something different, uh, one of our employees who happens to be blind used Microsoft's cognitive services to build an app that was basically using his iPhone to see for him, to represent the world. So it's using uh, vision sensing software, cognitive services, uh, uh, emotion sensing software. So he can sit down, you know, he, he would bring it here and he'd say, hey, I see a 50 year old guy with a beard and he's smiling. So he knows that if he just told a joke that I'm not, you know, sitting here quiet. Yeah, right. But it does other <laughs> things like he could put it in front of a menu and it said, well, they got pizzas and paninis and appetizers, what do you want? And he'll respond to it. Um, That's awesome. It's awesome, and it was it was it was one guy, one guy that did this, and then um, you know he got other people interested, and we did some hackathons, and now it's uh, it's it's out there on the ice. Uh, what do you ever call it? The i store. Yeah, Apple store. Seeing AI. I'm going to switch gears with you. So, um, but you can if you have some, you can add it into this question. Okay, so so I'm let's testing let, my skills. Here. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> so. Let's shift a little bit to customer experiences because I'm getting a time clock that I'm starting to pay attention to. So, so uh, a recent poll stated that 60% of customer experience leaders see larger returns on CX initiatives rather than other initiatives in their organization. Now, I know you, you, your new role is both internal um, workplace initiatives, right, as well mm -hmm. and then sort of how those connect to the customer initiatives. So how are customer experiences changing in your industry, which you probably talk about a lot <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> in finance. How are uh, they changing? <laughs> and and how, how can, so two part question. One is, how is it changing? Maybe just a synthesis. Mm -hmm. And the second, how is BMO Harris staying on top of the changing needs of your customers, right? And, and, and making sure that you're, you know, staying out ahead of those competition. So I, I would say, and, and I don't know of other industries that are impacted um, by the digital evolution more than banks. Um, but when you think about banking, um, it, it, the customer is at the core of everything we do. That's not just a tagline. When I think about our foundational drive, it is um, creating and driving great customer experiences. So it's not about delivering good customer experience. It is, and, and, and in that statement is resonant the leadership that we need to bring to this work. And it also um, implies that as experiences change, so must we. Mm -hmm. We see it in our banking centers. We now have smaller banking centers, um, not always. So, so one of the things that I tell folks is, um, Claudia McGowan, who's our CIO of uh, employee technology, uh, enterprise technology, we had a collision conference in Canada, and amongst all of the robots and um, digital interface and experiences that we brought to the table, which included EX3 Labs, one of the things that we also brought was a masseuse. And believe it or not, the masseuse who had the longest line <laughs> almost in the entire conference. It was intentional to, to, to let people know that digital doesn't exist without the human touch. Mm -hmm. 
And we were very clear on the message that we were sending. So it's not, and it's also trying to unnerve people about what happens with innovation. It is not about technology replacing people. It is people and technology against problems. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a message that um, our customers have said to us as we survey them. It is how we begin to drive our growth in this marketplace in response to what our customers are saying. They want to be, they want to, they want to touch the bank where they are. Yep. And there are still some people that want to walk into the bank on Tuesday and talk to Betsy who is bringing them donuts. And it's not necessarily just Betsy, it's about the human interaction. Mm -hmm. And so we are creating spaces that bring both of those together. And that is a direct result of what our customers are asking for. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it's critical that our journey be iterative and that we are constantly communicating in a circular fashion. What does the customer want? How do we provide it? And we engage our, our employees to help us to find that because they touch them most. And you guys stay pretty close to, to startups, mm -hmm. right? So maybe can you give an example or two of how you're actually working with startups to maybe incorporate some of the things that they're working on or to amplify or augment your team to you know, accelerate your path? So we, I, I mentioned, I think Adam's somewhere here. Um, we've engaged Adam a couple of times to help us talk about this um, technology journey to our customers. Um, and we also use him for his thought leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a partnerships um, group where we're actually engaging startups um, to bring them in and mentor them. And, and part of it's a two-way street, right? So we're learning from them, you know, what is it about how you serve the customer that we can glean from? And the difference is we're also sharing with them all of the regulatory challenges that if they want to start serving the population similar to how financial <coughs> services do, these are the things you have to understand. Um, and so it is, it, it's a it's a imperative journey that we continue to push on, um, it, and one that really doesn't have an ending for us. Mm -hmm. And so Guillaume and Adam, I guess to some extent, and you to some, Mandy, to some extent, are more B2B versus B2C. I mean, you've got, I guess you, yeah. you have the potential of both, and you certainly have the potential to have both. But Dow Chemical is, or Dow Inc. is pretty much B2B, right? Yes. Okay, so does, it, does your orientation to the customer experience change? No. I mean, the first reason is because the, the same individuals are consumers, and they bring their consumer expectations at work. So as I'm using my mobile phone for all my personal life, I project that expectation to my work. So we see a lot of uh, consumer-driven trends and expectations coming into the B2B space. That's the first thing. Uh, the other thing is I, the underlying principles around customer experience, you know, making it easier, enjoyable, effective, creating more binding with your customers and therefore increasing loyalty, for instance, is also something we're looking for. So we're not, uh, we're not immune to that as well. And in the end, I mean, I've, I've been to conferences where we were talking B2B, but it was just B2C content and B2C concepts and B2C trends mm -hmm. that somebody relabeled B2B. So I, I think <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting the same now. The lines are blurred and it's, it overlaps and it's becoming the same. Yeah, I would say the same. I mean, restaurant operators are our primary customer, but we're all consumers of food in one way, shape, or form, and we have expectations to know what's in it, where it came from, um, how it impacts our health, 
um, does this fit the specific dietary needs I have for whatever diet I'm trying out this week? Um, and then in terms of that, can I also then, um, and, and when you think about the impact of that behavior on our restaurant operator customers and then what they need to do for their menus um, and then and for their sourcing and, and where they get that, we have to think about um, our relationships with um, local farmers differently. We have to think about our relationship with people who are creating technology to make access to information um, easier and things about like traceability and track, tracking. Mm -hmm. it, I think it really does um, underpin the, the, the thought is that business is personal. Mm -hmm. And so the collision between B2B and B2C is getting blurred because at the end of the day, the person who's the CEO or the CFO that you're dealing with yeah. is a consumer. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to begin to, to appeal to them on a human perspective mm -hmm. long before the business imperative yeah. comes into play. Yeah. And it's interesting because, it, because it's a person. We're bringing back the emotion, the feelings in the conversation. So the, the B2B space, which was all rational, right. starts to bring right. back those elements. And it yeah. matters right. if you love it, mm -hmm. if you like it, if yeah. you enjoy it. And it matters if you do that as a person, right. because that's what drives a lot of the business. Well, selling to the enterprise, the enterprise isn't a, isn't a decision no, maker. No, no, right? it doesn't right. exist. Yeah. An enterprise does not exist. Yeah. It's the person on the other side of the phone that is there. Right. So. Adam, but to, to, to blend something that, something Mandy said and something Guillaume said, you know, you're, you're right. It, it's all about intent. Intent is 10,000 times more important than technique, and I'd say it's right up there with strategy, too. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're both a B2B company and a B2C company, and then I also play a third role. I'm on Betsy's board, so I get to see a lot of these things. <laughs> I think the problem that, that some companies, especially bigger, older ones, get tripped up in is around that intent piece. Um, are they internally driven, or are they really thinking about their customers' successful outcomes? Are you... Are you, you know, there's, there's companies that say, well, we're, you know, we're, we're very innovative. We're always getting customer feedback. Yeah, but you're getting customer feedback on existing products yeah. versus active listening and constantly listening to your customer, constantly listening to your base throughout the entire life cycle. Once you can say you've done that, then you, you've earned the right to go ahead and surprise and delight them, but not until then. Sadly, we only have five minutes left, so I'm going to do. I'm going to try to do two things in five minutes. The okay. first is we're going to talk about impact a little bit because it, I think our collective experience is that it's not that hard to come up with new ideas in an organization, but it's super hard to take those ideas and do something with them and measure impact in a way that people think is, you know, fair and it's clear across the organization. So Guillaume, can you talk a little bit about how? Yeah, you impact. Do this so. It's all about, for us, it's all about business. So what matters is not so much the idea, but it's the business impact. And with that, we had to come up with newer definitions about what we mean with that. So in our world, it's not just about ROI, but it's about understanding how you can describe the anticipated impact. And what we had to do is actually, we had to reverse some of our typical cycle spending much more time in the upfront phases where you assess the potential impact and then minimize the time you spend into the technical or technology execution and delivery. Now for us engineers, I'm an engineer, we, don't, we like to do it the other way around. So we had to really uh, hold, hold on and say no, we need to spend more time on that idea 
because the impact, the impact just doesn't make sense yet. Mm -hmm. And with that, we've worked very hard to always bring our businesses, stakeholders in this discussion to say, hey, we're about to do something around augmented reality. We want to do something with AI. We want to do something with blockchain. Great ideas, but we really need to spend more time with you so that we can vet and describe and be confident with what we anticipate as an impact. And then, and then I, by the way, as we were doing that, we were then able to accelerate the delivery because everybody was on board and then later on measure that impact. So for us, it's always been, it's not about the idea, but it's about the ability to anticipate the business impact that this idea will have. And that's tough, that's the hardest part. Great. Specifically with all the fancy digital things that are tempting us yeah, every day. Yeah, right, the sparkly things in the corner. Right? Yeah. You like those sparkly things. I do. <laughs> well, yeah, well resist the temptation. You got some sparkle? We sell so, those sparkly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> resist the temptation. Does anyone else want to add anything else with respect to I would just impact? say, yeah, so when we talk about impact, um, something that's very fundamental, engaged employees drive and attract engaged customers. And so one of our metrics is our employee engagement scores, and we, we look at them every year. Um, and how we, how we change how we work, um, it allows us to hire and retain the best and the brightest. And there's a, I mean, and, and I'm sure this is with most industries, but for banking, there's a direct correlation with the higher our engagement, the, the engagement level of our employees, the growth level of our customers, and the longevity of those customers, um, immediately respond. Mm -hmm. And so that is, when we think about what is at the core of how we measure how we're doing, our employee engagement is, is top of mind. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, I'm gonna do one last question for each of you. Um, based on where you sit today, looking at your own businesses and your own sectors, what is the one, and, and, you're, and you're looking out maybe five to 10 years from now, what is, what is the one prediction you have for, um, for your, for your sector, how it's going to change, well, or I, your business. I, I can tell you the tech sector in general. Um, I can tell you that the, the how many years did you say out? Three years? Five. Five years, even better. Five years from now, there are going to be jobs out there that you never even heard of. Um, I think it's it's a it's become an old adage already right now. Sixty-five percent of fifth graders today are going on to have jobs that don't exist, or th that don't exist today. That's the jobs that they're gonna have tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I think you're gonna see, definitely see jobs that are gonna go away because of the digital transformation. I think you're gonna see a whole bunch of new ones. And let's just work really hard and intentionally to make sure that we see the diversification in those future jobs that we didn't see in tech today. Great, Leslie? I, I would say that the same thing. Um, I would add, though, that for the companies that are going to be deemed um, the ones to watch, they're going to be the ones investing in their employees in that technology journey. So whereas jo jobs will start to go away, mm -hmm. um, the workforce is able to maintain um, some really talented people because we're actually up-tiering um, their adjustment to yes. mm -hmm. this. Right. Yeah, yeah. I would say digital technologies are going are gonna to go deeper and are gonna start disrupting what is core and essential to what we're doing. So for us, we're a science-based company. Our expertise, our critical core expertise is science. And I think what's, what may happen is that 
the way you innovate with new molecules, new formulas, the work that happens in the lab, that brain-intensive research is probably going to be disrupted one day where the machine, whatever it is, is going to be running digital formulation, digital experiment, digital simulations. And even that core, which today we think is our crown jewels, even that core is going to be impacted by this digital trends. Um, I think what's interesting about the food industry is that we're all going to continue to consume food. Yes. Um, but the, yes. the, the where, it kind of like, you know, when we think about what's going to happen soon is that the majority of the world's food is going to be eaten in really dense cities. Um, and I like to imagine what that looks like in terms of where and how food is produced, how it ends up in the restaurants that we visit, how that ends up on the plates um, in our homes, and how we think about um, the way that that our earth is changing and what does that mean for waste and regulation. And so in the food industry, yes, there's a lot of technology that, that's around that, um, but it's really, we're gonna be in just a, like a very interesting place when food is, is being moved through these dense urban environments um, differently. Awesome, did all of you learn at least one new thing? can't say no, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, please join me in thanking this amazing panel. Thank you. A question or two if the audience has any questions for the panelists. So, um, quick question for you. I promise this is not an in-depth question, but it's going to be very in-depth. Um, so anytime we talk about innovation, we, we generally talk about like diversity and inclusion within uh, innovative departments, whether it's Dell, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's BMO, whether it's food service, whatever that is. So how do you guys promote a diverse and inclusive environment which breeds innovation, right? So I think of like the Amazons of the world. I work in the supply chain world. So every day, supply chain's changing, mostly for the better, And but we have to have inclusive environments. We have to have diverse environments that, that breeds that innovation. How do you guys do that when you go back to your uh, employers, consultants, et cetera. So we're in the business of AI, artificial intelligence. And you don't have a choice in, it's existential for artificial intelligence that you have diversity. And I'll give you, let me give you a quick example. Um, if, you, if you use artificial intelligence for facial recognition, right, that works beautifully well if you're a white male. 85% of the time, it's going to get it right for a white male. For black males, it's down to 35%. For black females, it's down to 13%. How do you fix that problem? Well, on one side, that's a data problem, right? Because somebody is not including enough black females in their training and testing data sets, right? So that's problem number one. How are you going to make sure that that is front of mind and not an afterthought? How about hiring a lot more black females to, and, and skilling them up in, in artificial intelligence? You know, that's where the bias starts. Great. I, yeah. I would just, go ahead. No, no, you're first. So um, diversity inclusion is um, something that I think every organization continues to struggle with. Um, what we do uh, around linking the innovation piece and diversity and inclusion is one, we make sure that we're looking at the spaces where we don't have enough 
um, diversity. So we have we stood up a women in tech group um, to attract more women um, across the board and women of color to technology, especially within BMO. But our innovation fund literally goes out to all of our employees um, to ask what are what are some of the things that what are the bold ideas that you can bring to this innovative work um, to change how we serve our customer. And those ideas come from you know some of the most diverse employees that that we have. And it's not done with a picture. Um, it really is taking the idea, matching it up with um, areas where we might have risk, so risk and compliance are at the table, finance is at the table. Uh, so it, it also brings leadership to those ideas where we didn't have it before. So you've got the engagement of the employees, and we talk about the diversity of, the, of where the ideas are coming from. So it is about communicating about what this work is about uh, and the impact that we're having, and that we are being intentional about looking across our diverse set of employees and contractors to get those ideas and put them to work. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I agree with the struggle. Um, for, for us, let's say a few tactical things. Uh, challenge the way you hire people, uh, where from, and what kind of qualifications do you expect. So as a leading a digital innovation team, I don't want to have 100 person of software engineers coming from the same five universities. So, but you've got to change that. So how do you change that? Uh, diverse sources and change the profiles. Uh, the, um, another thing is the, um, the, what we did in our team is encourage rotations. So even within the company is make sure that you have that blend of expertise and you force blending and mixing expertise by rotating people. That's another piece. Uh, and the other thing for us that was very important was location. So uh, uh, the your ability to attract and engage a diverse team, but as well as diverse suppliers and vendors and partners also depend on your location. So our headquarters are in a small town in the middle of Michigan. Uh, we came to Chicago because we felt that this was one way to have access to a much more diverse ecosystem, whether it's this talent, uh, business partners, startups, uh, academia, uh, and then vendors and suppliers, and we've been tapping into the diverse ecosystem as much as we could. Similarly, we're looking for multidisciplinary thinkers, um, and that's mindset, skill set, tool set. At Relish, those are the things we're considering, and how do we get the most diversity um, within those and then support the needs of those people? Um, and then at Gordon Food Service, where we have a wonderful Shaquanda Gordon who is leading our uh, DNI initiatives and um, has really done a great job of trying to um, collaborate with with Relish and kind of share learnings. You know, since they did, you know, we set up this this location here in Chicago. How how is there anything I can give back, knowing what we've experienced here? You know, one of our our um, leaders said to our C, our global CEO. Um, if your leadership team looks like Sunday dinner, then you need to check yourself. And he has repeated that to uh, the lines of business that report to him as a challenge to say, this, this should not be our standard. I think that's a great note to end on. Let's give the panel a round of applause. Thank you.
I was out on book tour for Yes And, um, and I was at the Aspen uh, um, Ideas Festival. And I was getting texts from our owner who was concerned about like touring company sales, like of a thousand dollars or something. And I'm like, and I, when I got back, I, I, you know, we got in this conversation. I was like, I think I want to do, so I don't want to worry about that stuff anymore. Um, and he was very gracious. Uh, he was like, look, you're unemployable anywhere else. So uh, why don't we make you a consultant for a year and you can figure out either a way to have a bridge in back into Second City or, or a bridge out. A lot of how that's come about is because of our ability as individuals to see very directly and have a voice very directly in what brands and companies are doing. Because of connectivity, because of access, because of uh, greater transparency, we're able to have a voice in shaping and expecting and demanding that companies do good in this world. Many businesses impact people's lives, but very few impact as many and impact it in such a direct way because you open access to uh, health, well-being and enjoyment. The majority of the conversations I have is just like, we all know something's happening. It's like, what does it mean specifically for us? And really trying to get nuanced about that change so that we know we're solving the right things. One of the things we do with our customers is we empower our customers to control their finances. We do the same thing on the employee side, meaning we empower them to take risks and be entrepreneurial and come to the table with, with an opinion and to voice it and to be heard. It's never a one-way street. It's, it's at least a duality, if not more. And I'm talking about everything in the world. So in this, the mistake we, we often make in this sort of innovation space is thinking there's a direct line or it's one thing. And it's never. And context is going to change. And you're going to have to probably do it differently, this huge successful thing you had in a couple of years because some weird thing happened. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.